What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Nick Gowing. Welcome to the Emmanuel Centre here in London for this Intelligence Squared debate on whether the nuclear deal with Iran will or will not make the world a safer place. The nuclear deal was reached in July between Iran and six world powers, the US, UK, Germany, France, Russia and China. Tehran will halt its nuclear weapons program. In return, sanctions that have been crippling Iran's economy for more than a decade will be lifted progressively. Supporters of the deal say freeing up over $100 billion worth of frozen assets will help bring Iran in from the global diplomatic freezer. Detractors led by Israel say the deal is a terrifying mistake. So the motion for this debate... The nuclear deal with Iran won't make the world a safer place. We have an excellent panel for you here. Arguing for the motion, Emily Landau, head of the Arms Control and Regional Security Program at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University in Israel. Welcome. And Professor Alan Dershowitz, one of America's most celebrated lawyers. His latest book is The Case Against the Iran Deal. Against the motion... On my left, your right, we have Jack Straw. He was Foreign Secretary under Tony Blair from 2001 to 2006, and he has just returned from visiting Iran. And Norman Lamont. Lord Lamont was UK Chancellor of the Exchequer under John Major in the early 1990s. He's Chairman of the British-Iranian Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to you all. Well, shortly, you'll be hearing from all four panellists, two for the motion, two against... I will then throw the debate open to you on the floor. And you have been asked to vote on this motion uh, before the debate. You'll know later which way you voted and therefore the work that has to be done by both sides to persuade one way or the other and move the vote in their direction or retain the lead that they have uh, on this motion. Let's get the opening statements now from the panellists. Speaking first for the motion, Dr. Emily Landau. She's a security expert at Tel Aviv University. Dr. Landau has written and lectured extensively on the proliferation challenges posed by Iran. Dr. Landau, the floor is yours. Please welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In remarks last week at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said he's absolutely convinced that the United States, its allies, and the world will be safer if Iran doesn't have and isn't anywhere near to getting nuclear weapons. I think we can all agree to this, and this is indeed what the idea was behind the deal announced in July. But then he continued by saying that the verification measures and the transparency in the deal mean that the United States will know whether or not Iran is getting close to a weapon. And it's here where things begin to unravel. Because it's unfortunately not at all clear that the inspection regime in the deal will achieve this goal. 
Even more problematic is what Secretary Kerry did not say in his remarks. And what he failed to say is what happens if there is evidence of wrongdoing. Who does what, when, and how? Now, it's not surprising that this was missing from Secretary Kerry's remarks because the full answers to these crucial questions are missing from the deal itself. So let's take a quick look at the deal and why it won't make the world a safer place. First, it does not prevent Iran from attaining nuclear weapons. Rather, the success of this deal critically depends on Iran upholding the terms and not cheating. But let's face it. If Iran didn't have a record of being untrustworthy in the nuclear realm, we wouldn't be in this ordeal in the first place. And therefore, a robust verification regime is crucial to the success of this deal. And yet, Iran insists, for example, that IAEA inspectors will not be allowed entry into suspicious military facilities. Moreover, we keep hearing from the Supreme Leader more and more about what he does not intend to adhere to. And by the way, this has nothing to do with reports from this morning that Iran has taken initial steps towards implementation. It must do this in order to get sanctions relief. I'm talking about what happens later on. Success also depends on the ability and the political will of the P5 plus 1 nations to stop Iran if it violates the agreement. And this is the issue that Kerry failed to address. Now think about it. It took the international community 12 long years to get this agreement. How likely do you think it is that they are going to be looking for violations that might now jeopardize this deal? And if they do focus on a violation, will there really be enough time to make and execute the necessary decisions? Like, is this indeed a violation? Is it a significant violation? What can we do about it? What should we do about it? Who will do it? And how is Iran likely to react? Can we really expect effective solutions in a reasonable time frame? And I want to remind you, with regard to the so-called snapback sanctions, Iran has already said if sanctions are reimposed on Iran, this will be cause for Iran to leave the deal in part or in whole. This Iranian threat is worked into the text of the deal. The second reason why this deal is not going to make the world a safer place is that it doesn't alter Iran's motivation to go nuclear. And yet, the deal will sunset after 10 to 15 years, regardless of Iran's behavior. Unfortunately, the international negotiators seem to have pinned their hopes on achieving a delay in Iran's nuclear plans, and that in the meantime, Something will change for the better in Iran. But I want to assure you that nuclear nonproliferation policy cannot hinge on the hope for a more moderate Iran. We need to deal with the Iran that we know. And we could very well be facing the same regime with the same aims in 15 years' time. Certainly what we've witnessed since the deal came into effect, or was announced in July, what we've witnessed is anything but encouraging. Just three weeks ago, Iran tested a long-range, precision-guided missile that can carry a nuclear payload. This was in violation of a UN Security Council resolution. We see Iran's growing involvement in Syria, on the ground in Syria, revolutionary guards on the ground in Syria in increasing numbers. And we see what's happening to Americans that are detained in Iran on spurious charges. Finally, the deal works against the world being a safer place in a third sense. Indications that the deal is already undermining the global nonproliferation regime. Take the case of the United Arab Emirates. In 2009, the UAE was held by the United States to what has become known as the gold standard for civilian nuclear cooperation. 
Namely, it agreed to forego uranium enrichment in the context of a civilian nuclear program. But now the UAE sees Iran. The NPT violator granted legitimacy for uranium enrichment. And not surprisingly, it recently announced that it no longer sees itself bound by this restriction. Saudi Arabia has made similar statements about getting the same nuclear rights that Iran got in the deal. This is a serious challenge for nonproliferation efforts. Now, having said all this, as an expert on nuclear nonproliferation and arms control, I'm sure that there are those of you in the audience that are viewing me primarily as an Israeli. And I'm sure some of you at least might be thinking, you know, who am I to criticize? So I want to explain to you why I have no qualms about supporting the motion also as an Israeli. The fact that you can attach the word nuclear to two states does not make those two states identical. There are different motivations for going down the nuclear route. There are different types of behavior that states project regionally and globally. And there's different regard for international commitments. So Britain is not Pakistan. China is not the United States. And North Korea is not France. And Israel is not Iran. Israel has a policy of nuclear ambiguity for over 45 years. It's about keeping a low profile. It's about a record of restraint and responsibility in the nuclear realm. No testing, no nuclear threats, no talking about whatever capability Israel has. Israel is focused on one thing only in the nuclear realm, and that is to deter a threat to its very existence ensuring that it is not annihilated. That's it. As a sovereign state, Israel made a decision back in the late 1960s not to join the NPT. And thus, Israel never made a commitment in this regard. Same as India, same as Pakistan. And Israel has paid a price for this decision in terms of civilian nuclear cooperation. Now let's consider Iran. Horrific rhetoric directed towards the United States and Israel, hegemonic moves in the Middle East, repeated assertions that the only solution to Israel is its annihilation. And Iran joined the NPT of its own free will, and it made a commitment not to work on a military nuclear capability. So Iran's record in the nuclear realm is obviously quite problematic. Moreover, when we consider Iran's motivation in the nuclear realm. Unlike Israel, there's no basis for assuming that Iran is purely defensively oriented. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to what other states in the Middle East are saying. Iran is raising fears throughout the region in a manner that Israel never did for over 45 years of being an assumed nuclear state. Let me remind you that Egypt, Back in 1979, although it assumed Israel was a nuclear state and was not happy about it, signed a peace agreement with Israel, its major adversary, without making the deal contingent on Israel joining the NPT. That's a very strong statement. So images are one thing, but we must focus on realities on the ground, and they can be quite different from what we sometimes assume. Thank you very much. Dr. Emily Landau speaking for the motion, the first speaker for the motion. Let's get the first speaker against the motion, Jack Straw, Foreign Secretary under British Prime Minister Tony Blair. And uh, I should say that uh, Mr. Straw led a British parliamentary delegation to Tehran in 2014, and he's just been on a visit to Iran. Jack Straw, the floor is yours. Uh, Thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This motion is wrong. The deal between Iran and major world powers made on the 14th of July this year has already made the world a safer place. Moreover, those arguing against the deal fail comprehensively to come up with any credible alternative. 
Not one word in what Emily had to say was about the alternative uh, to this deal. There is no better deal available. This one took 12 years of complex negotiations. And the only alternatives are stalemate, doing nothing, or what I regard as the insane notion that bombing Iran will bring that country back to the negotiating table and that uh, will make the world a safer place. It won't uh, and it can't. Israel, as we heard, is a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Four other countries, apart from the P5 who are allowed nuclear weapons, are not. North Korea, India, Pakistan and Israel. Israel has legitimate security concerns, but I've always found it difficult to accept arguments from Israel about why other countries should accept their obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty when Israel, a nuclear armed state, has always ref refused to accept any external obligations, whatever, in respect of its nuclear weapons. In late 2002, it became clear that Iran had developed nuclear facilities which they'd failed to disclose under the treaty and which could have been used to develop nuclear weapons. With my French and German counterparts, I began the negotiations with Iran to bring them into the compliance with their treaty obligations. There's never been a smoking gun of incontrovertible evidence that Iran had a nuclear weapons capability. Even so, we worked on the assumption that Iran, spurred by its weakness and isolation in the eight-year-long Iran-Iraq war, was at the very least seeking the technical capability to make a nuclear bomb. When the moderate President Khatami was in power, we made considerable progress to achieving a deal, but never clinched one. President Khatami, who provided extensive help for the US invasion of Afghanistan, was rewarded for his efforts by President Bush's extraordinary ex decision to bracket Iran with Iraq and North Korea as an axis of evil. That, and much else from the United States, profoundly undermined the Iranian reformists Hatami included, and begat the eight dismal years of President Ahmadinejad's regime, a reminder that outside pressures on Iran profoundly affect its internal politics. And when Hatami left office, at the time when we could and should have done a deal, Iran had no more than 200 centrifuges by which to enrich uranium. When the benighted, appalling regime of Ahmadinejad ended in 2013 and Rouhani was elected, Iran had closer to 20,000 uh, centrifuges. Sanctions against Iran, tightened because of Ahmadinejad's obduracy, obviously were having an increasing and adverse effect on the Iranian economy and its people. President Rouhani judged that Iran's future lay in ending his country's isolation and happily for the rest of the world, President Obama judged that the only way to resolve the standoff with Iran was by negotiation and not war. And the joint comprehensive plan of action between Iran, the US and other world powers, agreed in July this year, is one of the most thorough such agreements ever reached. The White House claims that full implementation of the plan, and I quote, will ensure that exclusively peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program and they are right. And crucially, and contrary to what Emily has said, Iran has accepted a degree of intrusive and detailed inspection by the IAEA, which many other countries have refused. And while some of Iran's specific obligations last for 8 or 15 years, the IAEA will be able to monitor its production of uranium ore concentrate for 25 years. On the other side, there will be a phased lifting of sanctions, and at every stage, read the agreement, Emily, if Iran renages on any aspects of the deal, then sanctions could, and in my view, would be reapplied. And the question for everyone to, this evening to ponder is not whether this deal is perfect. It isn't. It's no deal ever is. It's whether it is better than the alternative. The alternative to this deal is no deal. It is no deal that would really make the world a much less safe place. No deal would have meant that the international, against, international consensus against Iran, the, 
the reason why we got a deal in the first place, would progressively break down. China and Russia would pull away from UN sanctions and start competing with each other within Iran for the maximum of influence and power, economic, political and military. They'd be joined by India too and Japan, along with most other countries in Asia and Africa. European sanctions would come under intense pressure, especially from business interests in Italy and Germany. Iran is crucial for any peaceful resolution of the bloody conflict in Syria. Of course, it has interests in Syria, so do the rest of us. Iran is now included in the multi-party talks, crucial to securing a deal. It wasn't before this deal, and it wouldn't be without this deal. So what are the alternatives of military strikes on Iran's nuclear facilities? Elements in Israel and some in the United States have been threatening these for nearly a decade. If military strikes were such a brilliant idea, why weren't they used on the Ahmadinejad regime when Iran really was diplomatically isolated? Because military action, is the answer, would never have worked. As Mayor Dagan, former head of Mossad, the external intelligence agency of Israel, has pointed out, military strikes would strengthen the hardliners in the Iranian regime, unite its people against Israel, lead to a collapse, an immediate collapse of international sanctions, and indeed hasten the day when Iran did become a nuclear weapons power. Such action would also leave Israel more isolated than ever. No wonder Dagan dismissed all talk of a military solution as a stupid idea. And no wonder, too, that once they had studied the deal itself, the 14th of July deal of this year, dozens of Israeli ex-generals, two former heads of Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, and a deputy, former deputy director of Mossad, all signed a petition calling on Israelis uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to accept the deal. Israel is for sure entitled to live in peace and security within its internationally agreed borders. This deal provides the Israeli people with that security in a way that neither of the alternatives, and there are only two, doing nothing or starting a war, neither of those alternatives do not. At a time of bloodshed, desperation and despair across much of the Middle East, this deal is the best news there has been for years, to make the Middle East and the world a safer place. It will do that, and the deal deserves our unflinching support. Thank you very much indeed. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Jack Straw, thank you very much indeed. Let's go to our second and final speaker for the motion, Professor Alan Dershowitz, one of America's most celebrated lawyers with high-profile clients like Patty Hearst, uh, Leona Helmsley and O.J. Simpson. His latest book is The Case Against the Iran Deal. Alan Dershowitz, the floor is yours. Thank you so much and thank you... <clears throat> Thank you for inviting me to join this distinguished uh, panel. I will respond toward the end of my talk to uh, Mr. Straw's argument that there are no alternatives. I believe there are alternatives, and I will suggest several alternatives. I will also try to point out that the alternative that he suggested and then condemned, namely a military attack on Iran, is, and I'm sorry to use this term, a straw man. But I will show that it's really not the argument that is being made against the deal at all. The alternatives that are being proposed are much more calibrated, rational, and consistent with the interests of peace. But I am very happy to have learned from uh, Mr. Straw that he agrees, certainly, that an Iranian regime with a nuclear arsenal would not make the world a safer place. I think we have consensus on that issue. I hope that consensus will continue. I hope we can also agree that an Iranian regime that spends billions of dollars that it now does not have to export terrorism through its surrogates such as Hezbollah won't make the world a safer place. Mr. Straw argues that the United States should not have called Iran part of the axis of evil, but certainly he agrees that the United States is correct in putting Iran on the list, indeed at the head of the list, of states that sponsor terrorism. I don't think anybody can dispute that claim. It is the greatest exporter of terrorism in the world today. I hope we can also all agree that an Iranian regime that seeks to exercise hegemonic control over Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and other Mideast countries, and has the resources to do it, which it doesn't have today, will not make the world a safer place. And finally, I hope we will all agree that a wealthy and powerful Iranian tyrannical regime that today kills, executes, gays, dissidents, Christians, Baha'is, Sunni Arabs, and others, that giving them increased power to put that kind of restriction on their own citizens will not make the world a better place. Now, if we can agree on all those propositions, then I think the debate becomes one about means rather than ends. Will this deal make it more likely or less likely that those agreed-upon goals will be achieved? I think there can be no doubt, although Mr. Straw said there is no smoking gun, I don't think he disputes or anybody can dispute the determination of the Iranian regime to develop a nuclear arsenal. Despite its hortatory statement in the deal itself that, quote, under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire nuclear weapons. I will get back to that statement in the deal when I come to my alternatives toward the end of my talk. Certainly, we cannot take seriously the undocumented claim that the current leader of Iran issued a fatwa against the development of nuclear weapons. Even Iran's former president, Rafsanjani, one of the more liberal presidents, has acknowledged that Iran met with the man behind Pakistan's nuclear bomb in an effort to secure nuclear weapons back during the war with Iraq. And this is the same Rafsanjani who described Israel as a one-bomb state and said that if Iran developed nuclear weapons and bombed Tel Aviv, they would kill three to five million Israelis, and that would be the end of the nation-state of the Jewish people. And even if Israel retaliated and bombed Tehran and killed 20 million Muslims, quote, the trade-off would be worth it. 
because it would be the end of the Jewish state and Islam would continue to thrive. This is not the kind of leadership that should ever have access to nuclear weapons, nor can there be any real dispute that the Iranian regime will do anything it can to get as close as it can to achieving a nuclear arsenal without being caught. Already, as has been mentioned by my colleague, it is developing and testing rocket delivery systems that are suited for the delivery of nuclear payrolls. Nor can there be any dispute that this deal, even if fully complied with, allows Iran to break out its nuclear weapons after a relatively short period of time. Now, we have to get that issue on the table, and we haven't heard from Mr. Straw what he thinks this deal says about when Iran is permitted to develop nuclear weapons. In my book, The Case Against the Iran Deal, I quote President Obama as saying that he should be judged, quote, on one thing. Does this deal prevent Iran from breaking out with a nuclear weapon for the next 10 years? Others have talked about eight and a half years, 12 years, or at most 15 years. Nobody, nobody is saying that this deal guarantees that, quote, under no circumstances will Iran ever obtain a nuclear weapon. So, in exchange for perhaps a decade, during which Iran will develop nuclear triggers, delivery systems, and know-how, but not an actual bomb if it complies with the deal. In exchange for that 10-year delay, what is Iran getting? Iran is getting hundreds of millions of dollars of sanction relief, plus the ability to earn even more without ending its support for terrorism, without ending its support for Assad's brutal mass murder, and without ending its intrusion in other countries and its repression and execution of its own citizens. In practice, it also gets the right to cheat under the deal by developing now-hidden nuclear weapon facilities, which, if discovered, they have 24 days to move or destroy. This is not the deal that President Obama promised the American people and the world. This is not the deal that President Obama promised me when he invited me into the Oval Office before his last election, looked me in the eye and said, Alan, you know me. You've known me for a long time. I don't bluff. Iran will never be allowed to develop nuclear weapons. I don't believe in containment. I believe in prevention. I don't believe in postponement. I believe in never allowing Iran to develop nuclear weapons. But this deal crossed virtually every one of President Obama's red lines. That's why our distinguished moderator, when he said that the opposition is led by Israel, in fact, the opposition to this deal is led by America. The vast majority of Americans oppose this deal. The vast majority of senators, the vast majority of congresspeople in the United States oppose this deal. The president managed to get it through by a congressional maneuver. Let's now talk about the alternatives to the deal. The alternatives to the deal are multifold. First, let's remember that Winston Churchill certainly recognized that preserving the status quo might be better than making a bad deal when he predicted that Neville Chamberlain's bad deal would result in war, which we all know it did. So it's not always the case that changing the status quo is an improvement. The status quo did have tough sanctions. And remember, the toughest sanctions come from the United States, which not only doesn't do business with Iran, but sanctions any European or Asian company that does do business. And if the United States maintained its sanction and kept its military option on the table, the sort of Damocles is most effective not when it drops, but when it hangs. I'm not in favor of a military strike on Iran, but I'm certainly not in favor of taking the military option off the table, which is why in my book I propose an alternative. The United States Congress should pass a statute saying we take seriously Iran's statement at the beginning of the deal that we will never under any circumstances acquire nuclear weapons. We take that seriously and we make that part of the deal. We authorize the President of the United States to take whatever action is necessary to assure that Iran will never, under any circumstances, develop nuclear weapons. So my view is the goal of the deal is to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons forever. Any deal that doesn't do that makes the world a less safe place. Thank you very much. Professor Alan Dershowitz speaking for the motion. The second voice against the motion, Lord Lamont. 
as Norman Lamont, Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1990 to 1993 and uh, Chairman of the British Iranian Chamber of Commerce. Norman Lamont, the floor is yours. Mr Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I too agree that it would be highly dangerous if Iran were to acquire a nuclear weapon. It would be enormously destabilizing and dangerous for the Middle East. The Iranians, of course, insist that they want nuclear power only for peaceful purposes, and they insist that that is their right. Whatever the truth of this argument, sanctions have not halted the growth of Iran's nuclear program. It has continued to expand throughout the period of sanctions. So given the failure of sanctions, there are, I would argue, despite what Professor Dershowitz has said, only two alternatives, either to use force to destroy their program or to negotiate. In my view, this is a historic deal which will, without force, verifiably prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. It's the result of 20 months of intense negotiations between Iran and the U.S., the U.S. plus Russia, plus China, plus the U.K., plus France, plus Germany. All those governments think this is the right deal. American Republican presidential candidates predictably disagree. So do hardliners in Iran. There's a lot of opposition in Iran. And so does Prime Minister Netanyahu. But he's been predicting that Iran was a year away from a bomb for the last seven years. The former heads of Mossad, the former heads of Mossad, Ephraim Halevi and Mir Dagan, they both think it's a good deal. So does Usi Elam, the former director of the Israeli Atomic Energy Commission. So does Isaac Ben Israel, the head of R&D, formerly of the Israeli establishment. All those Israelis who know about this think it's a good deal. Of course, this deal doesn't solve all problems with Iran. It doesn't solve the other problems that Alan referred to, Hezbollah, the regional problems. It's only about the nuclear program. But it's such a serious issue, it's worth having on its own. This agreement cuts off Iran's pathway to a nuclear weapon. Firstly, the plutonium route. Iran's heavy water reactor will be filled with concrete and unable to be used again. For 15 years, Iran will not be able to build any more heavy water reactors. On the uranium enrichment route, and despite what the first speaker said, uranium enrichment is not illegal. There are lots of countries in the world that enrich uranium, including Brazil, Argentina, Germany, Japan. It's not illegal, but Iran will remove two-thirds of its centrifuges that are used to enrich uranium. It will reduce its stockpile of enriched uranium. Again, that's not illegal to have a stockpile of uranium. It will reduce it by 98%. Iran currently has enough enriched uranium to build 10 nuclear bombs. When it's reduced, it won't have enough uranium even for a single bomb, and that cap will last 15 years. There's going to be 24 hours a day monitoring of Iran's nuclear facilities. There's no need to ask for permission. It'll be going round the clock. International inspectors will have access to Iran's entire supply chain from the uranium mines in the mountains right to the enrichment plants. If Iran wanted to cheat covertly, it would have to build a complete secret supply chain all the way from secret mines to a secret enrichment plant to a secret factory manufacturing a warhead. What happens if Iran cheats? There will be automatic snapback of UN sanctions. Any one of the six countries involved can ensure the reimposition of UN sanctions, and there can be no veto. Of course, as the first speaker said, Iran has said, you'll walk out if that happens. But that doesn't invalidate the point. Sanctions can be reimposed. What happens at the end of the agreement? Iran has confirmed that, unlike Israel, it will sign, what well, it has already signed, it will remain in perpetuity committed to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
So Iran will not be free to develop nuclear weapons, but UN members will be free to use force if there is any evidence that Iran is developing nuclear weapons illegally. Iran strongly denies that it has a nuclear weapons program. That view has been confirmed not once but twice by the CIA in the U.S. National Intelligence Estimate that concluded Iran abandoned any attempts at a nuclear weapons program well over a year ago. That was also the view of Dr. El Baradi, the former director of the International Atomic Energy Authority, that there was no evidence Iran was developing a nuclear weapon. Professor Dershowitz disagrees with the CIA. He produced a quote from Rafsanjani. I was a little bit suspicious of that quote without seeing it. I've got Professor Dershowitz's book here, and I read it because he's a very distinguished man. I wanted to be prepared for this debate. I wondered why he was so sure the CIA were wrong. I have this book. On page 37, he quotes the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, urging the Iranian military, and I quote, to have two nuclear bombs ready to go off in January 2005, or you are not Muslims. I wondered what happened to those two bombs. I was puzzled by Mr. Hamani's statement, since he publicly denies that Iran wants a nuclear weapon. Would he publicly have said this remark attributed to him? What is the source of Professor Dershowitz's quote? It's a Mr. Jerome Corsi, who I looked up on the internet, and according to Wikipedia, he's a conspiracy theorist known for numerous inaccuracies. <laughs> Mr. Corsi, Mr. Corsi is one of those who propagated the theory that President Obama was not an American citizen. Another of his theories... Another of his theories was that the United States was funding Iran to acquire nuclear weapons, a very strange source for you to have used, Professor Dershowitz. Another quote Professor Dershowitz gives is on page 135 from a speech by Prime Minister Netanyahu at the UN in which he quotes President Rouhani of Iran speaking to a body called the Iranian Cultural Revolutionary Council. According to the book... Rouhani said, a country that could enrich uranium to about 3.5%, which is what you need for electricity, will also have the capability to enrich it to about 90%, which is what you need for weapons. Having the fuel cycle capability means that a country that possesses this capability is able to make nuclear weapons. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard the quote. I put it to you. The clear implication of the quote is that Rouhani is admitting privately that Iran wants to develop nuclear weapons. If you look up the speech, and surprisingly it's available on the internet, you'll find that Rouhani was explaining why enrichment was so politically sensitive and why other countries were interested in Iran's program. And he goes on to say, Iran wants enrichment only for peaceful purposes. I agree with Professor Dershowitz, though, that sincerity is subject to proof and good words are not enough. I agree that there is a lot wrong with Iran. It's hostility to Israel. It's appalling human rights record. But I doubt that that record is worse than that of Egypt or Saudi Arabia, and we don't hear much from the West about that. But there is another side to Iran. The revolutionaries are growing old and have a country to run. It is a country with significant elements of democracy. It has a large Christian population and also a significant Jewish population, the largest but small Jewish population in the Middle East outside Israel. They're even represented in the Iranian parliament. Iran has made overtures in the past about improving relations with the West. In 2003, it supported the American invasion of Afghanistan. At the same time, it proposed normalizing relations with the U.S., and it offered to rein back its support for Hezbollah and Hamas. And as Jack Straw said, all it got was to be called part of the axis for evil. Iran, unfortunately, has many reasons to be distrustful of the West. The coup against Dr. Mossadegh simply because he wanted Iran's oil for Iran rather than for the UK. 
are maintaining the Shah in power, along with the notorious Mossad-supported secret police Savak. In 1983, the U.S. shot down an Iranian civil airliner, killing 290 people. And then there was the help the West gave Saddam Hussein when he invaded in Iran. It's impossible to understand the, security, the insecurity and the mentality of Iran without understanding the Iran-Iraq war and the fact that they lost almost as many people in that war as we lost in the Second World War. Iran, Iran is not going to become the ally of the West overnight, if at all. But there are common interests that we have, like fighting the Islamic State. Iranians are not apocalyptic, millenarian madmen wanting to blow the world up. I believe that this deal gives us the best hope of improving the relations with Iran. We have surely learned enough from our disastrous actions in the past to prefer a negotiated settlement rather than to push us yet again into another catastrophic war in the Middle East. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the seconder uh, against the motion. Let me give you an idea of how you were thinking when you came in to this debate. Um, for the motion, 34%. Against the motion, 43%. 23% of you are not sure yet. So you've already heard the opening remarks. We'll be hearing more from each of the, uh, the proposers, seconders, and those on each side throughout the next um, period. So I want to hear from you, uh, wherever you are, uh, right at the back, or, um, and there's a lot to play for in this debate now, as you can see, by the tightness of the percentages as you came into the room. Right. Hands up, please. Uh, I'm against the motion. I just wanted to point out, though, that um, I feel the debate keeps getting off point because being against the motion and for the deal does not mean that we're for Iran or for uh, the Iranian regime. We, most people here can agree that Iran has a terrible human rights record with minorities, women, and we don't need to keep defending that. Um, but the, uh, the foresight keeps drawing on that, and there are lots of double standards, especially since Israel too has a history of deception and not exactly a great human rights record. So how do you think um, occupied territories? Uh, so how exactly do you feel... How... How do you think that continuing this hostility can change the situation from within Iran or improve the, human, the rights of, human, of women, of whatever? Um, shouldn't that be a change that comes from within? Um, thank you. Right. Uh, that, yes, you're going to be, have, a, have a chance in one moment, and I'm going to explain why, so bear with me, uh, if you can, Emily. I want to introduce how you're going to vote because we're going to keep the discussion going, but I want to make sure each of you have a card like that. Some of you will know how this is done, um, and I'd like you to do it as, as quietly as, you, as possible, which is you tear off the for if you are for the motion, you tear off the against if you are against the motion, and you put the whole ballot paper in the box if you still haven't made up your mind. We're going to still debate, but can you start voting now on the motion? I'll remind you, the nuclear deal with Iran won't make the world a safer place. Could you do it with a little more quiet, please? Then we can continue the discussion. But this process is going to take a few minutes. So please vote. Right. Let's pick up some of those points that have been made. Emily Landau. Look, there have been comments that Iran, as somebody mentioned here, the demographics, and Iran uh, might change. And a woman here said, why shouldn't uh, we give Iran a chance? The, the, the problem is that we're dealing here with nuclear issues. Nuclear weapons and capabilities are a very serious matter. 
If a state achieves nuclear weapons, it's basically irreversible. There's only one case of a nuclear state, that's South Africa, that acquired nuclear weapons and gave them up. And it was a very unique set of circumstances that brought South Africa to that decision. And therefore, it's not about giving Iran a chance or hoping that there will be change in Iran. We all hope that there will be change in Iran. The, the people that suffer the most from this horrific regime are the Iranian people. They deserve to have a different regime that will better represent them and reflect their values. But when we deal with these nuclear issues, and we're dealing with them now, we have to deal with the regime that's in power. Um, and if this regime is allowed to acquire nuclear weapons, this will create a very, very dangerous Middle East, Europe, United States, and it will be tremendously detrimental to global security. I, I urge you to think about the case of North Korea. This was done through diplomacy. I wrote a book, a study, a large study, comparing diplomacy with Iran and North Korea from 2003 to 2012, okay? There were celebrations when deals were reached with North Korea. Today, North Korea is a nuclear weapon state, and nobody's going to be able to change that reality. And the leader in North Korea is throwing out nuclear threats all over the place, regionally to the United States. Okay, these are serious, serious issues, and they can't be taken lightly. Somebody at the back said, Dr. Landau is focused so much on the fact that Iran was a violator. Yes, because this all hinges on the fact that Iran violated the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. It was working on a military nuclear program for decades. When you deal with that kind of country, you need to have provisions that will ensure that Iran can't reach its goal. Yes, you need to deal with Iran differently. The fact that Brazil enriches uranium is totally irrelevant right, Emily Landau, to the Iranian thank you very much case. Um, Jack Straw. Well, one absolutely fundamental flaw in Emily Landau's comparison between North Korea and Iran. North Korea was a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and subject to its obligations, but it withdrew from the Non-Proliferation Treaty and any of its obligations in 2003. Had it remained a member and been willing to accept its obligations, the chances are, can't be certain, the chances are that it would not have been able to develop uh, a, the nuclear weapon that it has. But for that reason and a million others, there is frankly no comparison between North Korea and Iran. Iran has consistently accepted that it has obligations. It may have broken some, but it's accepted it has obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's been bolted to the floor on those obligations under this 130-page agreement. And what we've, we've heard criticism from Emily and from Professor Dershowitz about the what might have beens. And uh, Emily, all of us have been to football games or American football games and known that had we been on the pitch, we could have scored a lot more goals uh, than the people who did them. But the deal was the best available. The deal has been agreed. Whether it could have been better, probably. Deals always can be better, especially uh, from critics uh, who are observing. That's the deal, and I've still, after well over an hour and a half of this debate, have not heard any tangible alternative from either you or Professor Dershowitz about what you would do now, given the deal, that would make the world a safer place. And the blunt truth... Well, let, let me see if anyone out there has got a, a, a new idea just to pick up on what Jack Straw has just said. What I don't understand is what you were saying earlier, I think both of you, Lord Lamont and Jack Straw, but that you know, uh, Iran was trying to um, develop nuclear weapons until a short time ago, or that it was only a year ago confirmed by the CIA. Now, Jack Straw, you're saying this is the best deal that was available, but based on the history of you know, going from 200 to 20,000 centrifuges, what makes you so sure 
that you can trust. Who is it that you trust? Okay, what makes you so sure you can, be, you can have trust? Who do you trust? Uh, well, what makes, first of all, and as a matter of record, the national intelligence estimate of the United States, which Lord Lamont quoted, uh, one was in 2007, one was later, and both of those had concluded that Iran had abandoned its active nuclear weapon program in 2003. As I said in my opening, we worked on the assumption that it had a program. Um, that, that seemed to me to be a realistic uh, assumption. What makes me believe that this deal will hold is that there was a change uh, of government in 2013 in Iran. And Dr. Rahani, the president, for internal reasons, as well as I believe what he, what he, he himself believes in, wants to bring Iran from the cold and is willing to pay this price. Now, no one can be absolutely certain about these things, but I th none of us is also being naive. But I think with the level of detailed verification explicit in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, there is a much greater chance of that happening than any alternative. Alan Dershowitz. Iran really abandoned its, its nuclear program, as the uh, intelligence services said, then why do we need a deal? Why do we have to give up so much? Why do we have to give them so much if they abandon it? If they're going to comply with the NPA, why do we have to give so much? We're hearing contradictory arguments. We even heard a lot of clapping when it was said that Prime Minister Netanyahu had uh, predicted that Iran would be close to getting nuclear weapons over the last seven years. But that's exactly the argument that's been made by the proponents of the deal, that they've been getting closer and closer. President Obama, I think, said that if the deal weren't struck, they'd be within two or three months or several months from accepting the deal. So what is the reality? And, and the reality is that we have heard nothing from the other side that contradicts my assertion that this is a 10-year deal. So in nine and a half years, Iran will develop nuclear weapons. And I submit that we all agree that if Iran develops nuclear weapons, that would not be good for peace. And I think we've proved tonight, by the absence of any rebuttal on the other side, that they will develop nuclear weapons within nine and a half years. So I think they have defeated their own argument, and I urge you to vote in favor of the proposition and against the deal. Norman Lamont, an absence of, an absence of rebuttal to the idea that Iran will start developing nuclear weapons again in 10 years. Well, I, ju I just wanted to make a, a point to the gentleman. Well, could you answer this one first? Well, I, I just want to answer the, the, the question which, which was put, because he referred to the fact that Iran increased its centrifuges during the period of sanctions from some 3,000 to, to over 20,000, and was saying that was an example of Iran cheating. That is not cheating in any way. It's perfectly legal to enrich uranium. The, the only thing that is illegal is if you divert the enriched uranium to a weapons program from the enrichment. That's a fundamental confusion that the other side have been quite happy to spread. But the fact that Iran increased its enrichment during the period of sanctions was not evidence of Iran misbehaving in any, any way. It's perfectly legal for a country to enrich uranium. All right, the absence of rebuttal. That's what Professor Dershowitz is saying, that in nine and a half years, they can start producing nuclear weapons again. Well, that's, that, that is not correct, because quite a lot of the provisions of the treaty last for 15 years. There are several of them. Some of them last for 25 years. And, indeed, there, there is the NPT that kicks in, even when all the provisions have lapsed. And why do you need the deal if you have the NPT? Why, why right. do you need the deal if you have that? If you can't rely, on the one hand on the non-proliferation treaty, and on the other hand say that without a deal, the non-proliferation treaty would be meaningful, meaningful, Jack meaningless. Shaw. How can you answer that? You have no prescription whatsoever, Dr. Dershowitz, for resolving this situation. You criticize the, you criticize the deal, you, pick, you try to pick it apart, not very successfully. You then say, that you don't believe in a military strike, but military strikes should not be off the table. What is it that you want? All I know is that your strategy of no deal, of, of denying this deal, 
would certainly have made the world a much less safe place. Why? Because Iran would have developed nuclear weapons? But I'll tell you so why. you have to I'll answer that question. i tell you why. Would it have we... been a less safe place because Iran, no. Iran, without a deal, would have developed nuclear no. weapons? Because if you say yes to that, you've destroyed your entire argument. But, but, but Professor Dershowitz... Why, why, why don't you come clean? Why don't you actually say what your solution is? Because it's in your book. And what you say is that the deal should be supplemented by the U.S. actually taking a decision uh, and having the authorization that there would be a nuclear strike on Iran if it developed a nuclear weapon. And that should be added to you, That's what you, you say in your book. Why have you, you not said it tonight? First of all, I have said it... That is a deliberate lie. Go back and look at the videotape, and you will see that I said exactly that. What I said, and what Tom Friedman of the New York Times has said, is that Congress should pass a statute saying that we take as part of our policy that Iran has to stand by its commitment that it will never, under any circumstances, seek to develop or obtain nuclear weapons. That's what I say in the book. And then I say that what... Congress should do is should authorize the president to take whatever action is necessary military to make action. sure whatever action. action is necessary. Military action. Let Use the words, Dr. President Obama, military action. President yes. Obama has military said. Action. President Obama has said all options should be kept on the table. Yes, I believe that the George Washington said in his second inaugural address, the West best way to assure peace is to make sure your enemy knows that you're ready for war. The sword of of Damocles hangs. And let me tell you, you may not like this, but if if the German government in 1938 understood that Germany, that Britain was ready for war, and don't criticize me, criticize Winston Churchill, because the position I'm stating is precisely the position that Winston Churchill stated. What he said is... You have sold our honor to obtain peace. We will neither have honor nor peace. There will be war. And there was war. And having a military option on the table without using it prevented Iran from developing nuclear weapons from the time it started its program. Maintaining the sanctions, maintaining the military option. By the way, all of the Israeli officials that you quote in favor of the deal have all said that the military option must remain on the table as a last resort. President Obama has said that. The prime ministers of virtually every country have said that. And yet you attack me as a warmonger for actually quoting what all the leaders of the free world, including the P5 plus one, have said. So yes, the military option ought to be taken, kept on the table. It should not be taken off the table ever as a last resort because, yes, given a choice, and I put this to you, given a choice between Iran having military weapons on the one hand or a military attack, yes, I believe that the least worst alternative is a surgical military attack on Iran's nuclear weapons if the only other alternative is nuclear weapons in Iran. And I proudly stand by that position right. okay, that's enough. as a liberal and as a peace lover. Right. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. Right. Okay, right. Um, I'm going to give... Thank you. One, one, please. There's a woman here that wants to speak as well. And this all is- of you that, all of you that are booing, all of you that are booing what Professor Dershowitz said are so misguided because if Iran attains a nuclear weapon, war will be your, the, the least of your problems. There will be such destruction in the Middle East and beyond that you are just not looking reality right. in the face. Right. It's easy to take that position in London. At that point, it's very clear we have a significant division up here on the platform. Thank you for all your interventions. We have not resolved it tonight, but we do have clarity of the way you here in the Emanuel Center are thinking. Let me just tell you what the result of the vote is. I remind you that uh, the motion is that the nuclear deal with Iran won't make the world a safer place. And before we started the debate, 
34% were for the motion, 43% were against the motion, 23% hadn't made up their mind. Almost everyone who hadn't made up their mind has now made up their mind. Only 2% of you haven't made up your mind, and it shifted significantly towards against. And... The percentage is 35% for the motion, but 63% against the motion. So I declare the motion has been defeated. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.